Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The Archetype of Sacrifice and the Regulation of Archetypal Energy with Robert Moore, Ph.D. This is the morning session of a weekend taught by Robert Moore from the seminar description. This workshop links Jung's alchemical studies and his examination of the archetype of sacrifice to more recent research into the nature and dynamics of grandiose energies in the human psyche. In this program, Robert Moore discusses how the decline of ritual containment of these energies in indigenous and traditional cultures has led to an epidemic of increased anxiety, addiction, and violent acting out. First, Moore introduces the role of the archetype of sacrifice and related techniques of ritual practice in human strategies of coping with the pressures of archetypal energies. Second, he links the failure of these traditional means to our current epidemic of narcissistic acting out. Third, he summarizes the ways in which recent research supports Jung and Edinger on the necessity of achievement of an ego self-axis, a conscious and willed sacrificial attitude in the individuation process. Finally, Moore outlines the clinical implications, the ways in which we must be much more specific in our understanding of the structure and dynamics of the ego self-axis in relation to the analytical task. He discusses the implications of this understanding of sacrifice for our conceptualization of a truly Jungian understanding of a psychoanalytic cure, the task of optimizing the analysis conscious regulation of archetypal energies. In short, Dr. Moore argues that Jungian analysis should return to its roots in a manner which draws upon the best in recent interdisciplinary research to build upon Jung's foundational discoveries. I'm not going to read his whole bio because we've had a lot of episodes of his. I just want to say you can support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. If you would like to purchase the entire weekend with Robert Moore, just visit our website or click the link in the show description. Your support enables us to provide free and low-cost educational resources to all. Thank you. Now, here's the seminar. I'd like for us to uh, get started with just uh, uh, some brief uh, uh, introductions, uh, and then we're going to jump into this topic today. <clears throat> I will make some introductory comments uh, uh, I'm Robert Moore. I will be your instructor today and colleague and partner in reflection on this material. Uh, this is, a, uh, this is a, a workshop that is a continuation of a, a series of uh, workshops that I've done here over, the, over, the, uh, over recent years, all a part of, a, uh, of an integrated project, which I'll speak more about in a little bit. With this workshop today, we are getting focused on what I believe to be some of the most key um, archetypal dynamics uh, in our struggle uh, to individuate, uh, to become empowered uh, with archetypal energies without, <clears throat> without uh, having them become destructive. So it's really uh, this, all of these, uh, and I'll go over in a minute, uh, I guess I should do that at this point. Uh, 
Uh, I began work on this sort of thing just trying to think about the great self. You've, many of you have heard me speak of the great self within many times. Uh, in my work, I have sought to continue Jung's work on the collective unconscious and particularly his work on trying to understand the shape of the great self within. Uh, so what somebody, some people would call the God within, the God imago. I began some years ago with a series of lectures on the mythology of the great self within, which are available through the Institute. And uh, I have uh, followed that up with studies on psychopathology. I've got a book manuscript uh, on the collective unconscious and psychopathology, the structure of madness, which I'm trying to get ready to go to press now. And then not long ago, some of you were here when I was doing this workshop on transforming fire, which is really focusing on uh, previous uh, reflections on uh, this issue of uh, dealing with the great energies that come off the archetypal self. <clears throat> my, recent, my most recent book, which you may have seen, I think they have copies of it here, is Facing the Dragon, which uh, I've, I brought this uh, article on. Uh, uh, on dragon mythology uh, for you to peruse uh, over the lunch hour. Uh, because really, uh, we will be thinking about uh, the primal mythology of the great sacrifice of the primal dragon and what it means uh, in the context of uh, individuation and uh, transformative process. Uh, <clears throat> so this this workshop today is really the culmination of a lot of work and is focusing on uh, what I believe to be some of the central mysteries uh, of, of empowerment, uh, of becoming your most radiant self, uh, and the, what, what I would argue would be the, the, the essential understanding and also conscious spiritual and psychological practice which has to be done uh, if you are to really become uh, an awakened self. The theme that's going to go underneath all of this weekend, our work together, is this. You don't really have any choice about sacrifice. You are going, you are presently in the process of sacrificial process. The question is not, are you going to sacrifice tremendously important things? But are you doing it unconsciously, uh, unaware of the price you're paying in sacrificial dynamics? So the whole, the whole sweep of the issues, and I want you to be thinking about these things, is the challenge of getting from unconscious sacrifice to conscious sacrificial process. And by so doing, <clears throat> become able to engage in creative uh, sacrificial process, uh, which really uh, can transform uh, a wasteland, either personal or social, uh, into a uh, uh, a land of plenty, uh, a land of uh, plenitude, Paroma. 
So that's really the subtext underneath all this. And so there's, so there's a lot of pre work that has gone before here. And, uh, and uh, so those of you who have not studied this material with me before, bear with us. And you be free, feel free to raise questions of clarification as we go. I personally would like to dedicate this workshop today to two of my dear friends, Sherry and John Franklin, who were psychotherapists and specialists in psychology and spirituality in the Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, <clears throat> uh, for many years and studied many years here in this, in this room, were great supporters of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago and brought a great influence in the Pennsylvania area through their work with psychosynthesis. A few years ago, Sherry got a very severe form of brain cancer and uh, has had a real struggle with it. The community that they had developed there gathered around them, uh, Sherry and John, and sought to help them in the best way of our supportive communities to, to uh, to deal with this scourge. John was very faithful and, and uh, committed. He was a big supporter of Tibetan Buddhism and, and the uh, work of the Dalai Lama. He was by our side till the end, which came for a uh, good Friday morning, 2.30. Later on that morning, John, uh, lying down to sleep to get a little rest, died. His heart stopped. So I'm kind of in shock about that. These were two people that made a powerful offering of their great creative gifts and gave a tremendous uh, surge of life in the lives of many. So I just wanted to say that today. So welcome. I want to just do a very brief uh, thing here. I've already told you that uh, this workshop, if this goes fast for you, because I'm assuming a lot of stuff from the past, that stuff is available in these lectures the, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Basically, I've been working to try to get to what I've called, many of you know, a neo-Jungian uh, understanding of transformative process in psychology and spirituality. Uh, I'm, really try I'm really trying to help... Uh, folks understand the necessary partnership between conscious spiritual practice and uh, psychological healing. And uh, so I've been working on that quite some time, and I'm, uh, in terms of the spiritual practice idea, I'm, I'm, I'm working this, all of these materials, this recent group of workshops, will eventually, I hope, come out in a book that uh, will be the sequel to this Facing the Dragon book which uh, will be called Riding the Dragon. And it's about, it will be about getting conscious about these great energies in the psyche and what you actually need to do about it. And we'll be touching on that some today. Uh, the only follow-up workshop which I may do to this before uh, getting into that would just be one that will elaborate more experientially on the thing I'll be talking about tomorrow, which I'll get to in a moment. But here's the layout for our workshop for this weekend. I want to talk a little bit about why I study this particular archetype, because I've, I've felt for many years that this was, if you really care about the objective psyche and the collective unconscious, there are a few things that you really have to look at. You've got to look at the psychology of the archetypal dimensions of blessing, 
Uh, I did that a lot in my book on the king within. And uh, you have to look at the, the archetypal dimensions of pilgrimage process, uh, sacred space and transformation through the pilgrimage process. I did that in the book on the archetype of initiation, which is another way to talk about the journey, the, the idea of the archetypal journey, the process of initiation. And the book, uh, The Archetype of Initiation, uh, addresses that. I've said also that key uh, is to look at this archetype of sacrifice. Uh, and we'll, I'll talk about why this is so important in a minute. And then we'll spend some time, hopefully, uh, before the break. Uh, just, I'll just lay out some of the uh, basic phenomenology of sacrifice. Some of you will, could write a paper on this. Others of you will be kind of fresh for it. Uh, then after the break, I'll be talking about sacrifice and the psyche. And I will put this in the context of Jung and Edinger and so on, on the importance of the archetypal self in understanding the context for all this discussion of sacrifice. As we'll see, sacrifice is always about attempting to relate to the powers that be, that are not you. Uh, it's, trying to, it's trying to deal with powers with a capital P. And as we'll see in a minute, they come from a lot of different sources, but human beings, before we got so tone deaf symbolically and ritually, uh, were conscious, very preoccupied with, with dealing with the powers. In the contemporary world, we get very unconscious and we act out all over the place unconsciously. We don't really name the powers anymore very well, but we still are subject to them, and sometimes in a more primitive way, often in a more primitive way. Then uh, I will turn to the structure of sacrificial process, because what I want to, to do is to add to Jung and Edgar my, my delineation of, of how you have to ask the question, how are you sacrificing? especially unconsciously. How, how would you be able to think about what you are sacrificing without really realizing it? And I'm just going to do the briefest of passes with you, and we will discuss that in terms of the splitting of the self, the fragmentation of the self. Because I'm going to argue today that uh, the one-sidedness in your personality whether you're conscious of it or not, like I'm very conscious of, of a lot of the one-sidedness of my personality. And I have, through great struggle <laughs> and spending a lot of money on analysis, become more aware of what I am splitting off. But I think it's useful for me to think in terms of what I am, what am I losing in the way that I have allowed myself to become structured and to get it conscious that I am doing a lot of unconscious sacrificing of important aspects of my being. And I'm not aware of doing it. And even as I struggle to become more aware of doing it, I'm still having a hard time 
figuring out what to do to, to, to stop making unconscious sacrifices. And as we'll see later, to start making them more consciously. Because as we'll see, human beings have, have understood very primordially. If you sacrifice consciously, a lot of the time you can optimize a communion between you and the powers. Sacrifice has always been an attempt by human beings to create some kind, this is your economics thing, this is, you know, to create some sort of exchange process or to acknowledge that process that already exists and to try to participate in that more consciously and fruitfully. And we're going to look in a minute at some of the various ways they've looked at that and think about it from a Jungian point of view. Uh, but clearly, the purpose has been to move toward more creative communion. And it may look very bizarre to us as moderns, but I'm going to suggest to you that uh, modern behavior is far more bizarre than uh, this archaic forms of sacrifice in which they were far more conscious than we, were, than we are about it. And we'll talk uh, before we get out today about clinical manifestations. And I'm going to, ask, I'm going to invite you uh, this afternoon to be reflecting about, and we'll, we will seek to be as, as honest with each other as possible. And, and actually, uh, you can frame your questions in, well, what if a person, you know, you can say, what if a person was doing so-and-so and so-and-so? And then we'll just know it's perfectly hypothetical, right? And then we will talk about a person that might be doing that, and we'll think about their sacrificial process. But um, some of you have more healthy exhibitionism than others, and so uh, you're free to talk about yourself if you wish. Uh, the only problem is then we have to edit that off the tape, and uh, I would like this to be the primary thing that my offering with this is that people that will listen to these tapes that will be able to, to benefit from this beyond our circle here. So by this afternoon, I hope we get to that point, and, and I hope that we'll be able to have you get to the place of reflection about where you are uh, engaging an unconscious sacrificial process. Uh, you probably have already got a lot of sense of that, as, as I have a good bit of mine. But tomorrow when we come back, we're going to uh, focus on this issue of awakening to conscious sacrifice. And I'm going to start you out with an alchemical image. And those of you that have the collected works, which I'm sure some of you do, uh, I'll give you the reference uh, from some of the texts, uh, you know, after lunch about what, what I want you to look at. And I'll, I'll read just some of it. And then I'm, I'm going to use an alchemical image for what I think is sort of the normative vision of optimizing this process of conscious, conscious sacrifice. Uh, it is a reference from Jung's uh, Alchemical Studies, his, his volume on Alchemical Studies. And in short, it has to do with uh, the whole process of forming an inner temple by balancing the opposites and creating a four-square temple in the psyche. And in that temple, to, to engage in the process of a conscious sacrificial offering within that temple. 
Uh, and so that is, that is what we're going to focus on tomorrow, the creation of that inner temple. And I'm going to assume that you will, are, are connecting with the juices. I like to call them the juice. And what we'll talk about tomorrow is balancing the opposites so you can fill up your cup with archetypal energy. Because if, you're, if your opposites are splitting too much, you're not able to carry much archetypal energy. If you balance your opposites out more, you can, the cup will get fuller and will start running over. And, um, and Jung has presented in his look at, at these alchemical texts what I believe to be a, an archetypal image of what I think is a process you can understand a lot better if we work together on it. And so uh, uh, we will try to leave with the uh, issue of communing, communing with the dragon the archetypal self. This part about the archetypal self and sacrifice, as you know, I've, I've, I, I've used dragon mythology. I, I, there was an article on the science page of the New York Times recently that I had copied for you. Uh, you want to peruse that over the break because that is uh, some, some evidence substantiating Jung's claim that these archetypal mythic images are in the collective psyche. And uh, they're trying to figure out what the dragon image means. They haven't really looked at Jung. They say, well, this is kind of, this is like kind of what Jung said about the collective unconscious. But they haven't really thought about uh, what it means. And before we get finished, we'll talk about sacrificing the dragon because uh, a lot of these primal mythic images are of, of the dragon. There's even an image of the, the, drag, the, the serpent, the great serpent being crucified. So we'll, we'll address those images. All right, let me turn now to uh, remember our, our whole issue in this is the way in which humans have sought to regulate their contact with the powers through sacrificial process. Now let me jump in now to this uh, issue of the definition of sacrifice. There are a lot of different sources on this. In fact, there, as I've said, there's huge amounts of stuff on this in the anthropology and historical sources. <clears throat> but our word sacrifice comes from the Latin word sacrificium. And it's a term for a religious act in which a thing is made sacred. Something is made sacred. It is given to a, to a god and made the property of the God. As we'll see later, there's also a sense in which you begin to get conscious that it is the property of the God. You, you may not have known it was the property of the God, but you get conscious that it's the property of the God. You know many examples of this. The... Uh, the father of a family might take a handful of food, and you see some indigenous peoples that do this type of thing now. They take a handful of food at a meal and put it into the fire as a symbol of, uh, uh, of an offering uh, to, the, to their spirits or their deities. In Greece, there, were, uh, there was a kind of a, a primordial split between 
types of sacrificial processes. One type was offered in the daytime. This was sometimes called the Olympian views of sacrifice. You would offer your offering in the daytime, you would take parts of the victims, the, the ritual victims, and you would burn them, a part of it, a good part of it, as an offering to the gods. And then you could eat, the rest of the people at the worship could eat the rest of it. You, you and I might think about this. This is an homage to the gods of the light side, the gods of the daytime. And uh, this purpose of this type of uh, sacrificial process was to honor the gods that you thought were friendly to humans. And there was another kind of sacrificial process, and I think for Jungians this is very interesting, because Jung always emphasized that the archetypal self, Mercurius, could manifest in a very positive, helpful way, or it could manifest in a very destructive, adversarial way. And I think it's very interesting that these ancient rites sort of picked up the difference between those. And then these, these other rites were offered at night. And whereas on the, in the ones for the daytime, you would build an elevated platform and you would, you would offer your offering on this elevated platform and the smoke would go up, see, to the, to the deities. The ones that were offered at night, uh, it was, you, you can just really see, it's in, this is an attempt to, to placate the unfriendly powers. And what they would do would be to dig a trench, a, a depression in the ground. And the offerings would be made uh, in that depression in the ground. And you didn't try to eat anything from that. You made your offering. And one of the interesting things the scholars have noted is that whereas in the offerings in the light, Often there would be speech and ritual incantations where you would, where you would talk. But in the ones at night, you wouldn't say anything. That's interesting from a Jungian point of view to just think about that. And let me just ask you for a moment. Do you have an idea about what's going on there? Why, why, not, why not eat anything uh, of the offerings at night? And why keep your mouth shut at the offerings at night? Yeah. Because obviously the observation or the general belief would be that the powers of night were probably extremely predatory. If you call attention to yourself, you will be the sacrifice. There's a real powerful understanding in archaic peoples that's far superior to ours today. Even psychologically fairly sophisticated people. That is to say, these archetypal forces, when they get into their dysfunctional, demonic expressions, are very powerful, they're very contagious, they're not friendly, and they're very infectious. 
And he used the word, Nolan used the word predatory. And uh, I think that's a, that is a, uh, if you read the uh, introductory section on the psychology of evil in uh, the Facing the Dragon book, I address some of that stuff. That, uh, that people in the ancient world had a very, very much more powerful sense that these energies, sacred, sacred energies, they were sacred because they were certainly extraordinary. They were not ordinary. They weren't under the control of humans. Some of these things were extremely dangerous. And you get close to them. You don't want to get friendly to them. You get, you get to this close to this trench to try to propitiate them, keep them away. So one of the things that I noticed in reviewing all this stuff for, for this workshop is, is that you have a, a, a division in sacrificial rites between those that you're trying to bring the other, the great, the primal other with its powers closer so you can be in a traffic with them, uh, mutual, mutual gift giving and receiving traffic with them. And then you've got these other sacrificial rituals in which you're not trying to get them to come close. You're trying to get them to stay away. You're trying to just get them to not, as Nolan said, not eat you. It really takes a sense of the, uh, what Jung would talk about as sort of the dual, the, the, the dual face of the unconscious to make sense of that. Most of these scholars had very little psychological insight whatsoever, and they certainly had no Jungian insight. And so a number of them would say things like this. They would say, it's not possible to come up with a theory which makes sense of the relationship between all these different forms of sacrifice, which makes me kind of chuckle a little bit, because uh, what I will suggest to you is that if you begin to get a sense of of the objective psyche and the power of the archetypal self and you begin to think about different ways people can, the ego consciousness can be positioned with regard to these powers, you can get pretty good sense of the varieties of what people do with regard to these sacrificial uh, activities. And I will uh, just summarize very briefly some of those in a minute. A survey of sacrificial practice uh, then shows that there are really basically three different possibilities for what you do with the sacrificial victim or animal in one of these sacrifices. One, you can eat all of the sacrificial victim. So in some of the sacrificial practices, you, the victim is sacrificed and then the group communally eats it all. The second one I've already mentioned, you can eat part of the sacrificial victim and offer part of it up to the gods, to the deities. You can eat none of the sacrificial victim. As one I talked about, the, 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 the propitiation of the darker powers. And you can also, in that one, you, you will burn all of the offering. But when you're burning all of the offering, you can be, as we said, that can be burning as an offering to the dark deities, or it can be an indication of glorification of the higher deities. And now let's think a minute about 
how one might how one might think about that sort of thing. When we start looking at uh, after the break, when we start looking at this, we'll be thinking about what is the what's going on with an ego, which will try to eat all of the victim. Uh, we can think about that a little bit in terms of addictive process. Cannibalism is uh, is one form of that, where you where you where you gather together and you eat your you eat your victim. I think you see a beginning of differentiation when you see this thing about eating part and offering part. We'll be trying to think about that more psychologically later. But uh, when I've been looking at these things, you can see that there's a very, very powerful sense of the primal merger with the God in cannibalism. I'm going to take you in. Then I'm going to have all your power. Then there's the beginning of this differentiation. Maybe if I give you a little bit, you'll let me keep a lot. And then I get to the point where, oops, I didn't really realize how powerful this God is. So I better make sure they get it all so that they're not mad about my bargaining with them. Because it's not, it's sort of arrogant for me to think I can bargain with them, so I'm going to give it to them all. So I just su submit to you that you think about the varieties and the way the sacred is being viewed, whether it's being viewed as the primal animal that you tear apart and you eat together, or whether you see it as something that you can kind of bargain with, or whether it's something that is so huge you're clear how big it is now and you're going to make sure it knows that you're humble. So those are primal, primal differentiations in, in the process of sacrifice. Now in my work that some of you are aware of about uh, our ritual process in sacred space, I've pointed out, and this is where you need to review your Iliadi work, to understand that anytime you're really going to do in those days, conscious ritual process in the way that they did it. You had three kinds of elements usually in these, in these rites. Huge emphasis on preparation. Huge emphasis on getting ready to do the sacrificial process. And this is about the capacity, the human capacity for reverence. Without a sense of reverence and respect, you don't have any sense that these are the powers. In other words, if you, if you don't get that you need to make preparations for your ritual practice, it's simply because you don't realize that these are capital P powers that you're dealing with. You're just sort of asleep. And so those that was almost always done by the ritual elders, people who were very aware of uh, these uh, presences, these powers. And they were the ones, the elders, and they could be the king, it could be the head of the family, often was the head of the family. Uh, but it could be an assigned priest or priestess. They would make clear that there's a differentiation between the sacred and the profane without making that clear differenti differentiation and without becoming reverent 
then the process would not work. I mean, it would, it, at, at best, it wouldn't work, and at worst, it would backfire on you because of your disrespect. So then the, uh, the sacrifice proper, and we'll talk about the elements of sacrifice in a minute. Let me just go over the elements with you. In all these studies of sacrifice, they say they always pay attention to who is the sacrificer. There's the sacrificer. Let's go through that. There's the sacrificer. There is what is offered. There's when you do it. There is the method you choose. There is the question of who receives the sacrifice. And there's the question of what is your motive or goal in the process. Now, let me give you an example in the uh, ancient Hindu Vedic practice. There was a husband and a wife that were the, that were the people doing the sacrifice. In preparation, they had to undergo an initiation which involved ritual bathing, purification, so much of that and all these, right, some sense of purification. Going into seclusion, the practice of fasting, the practice of prayer, all this was in order to prepare them to leave the profane world and to be prepared for contact with the sacred world. Then they would make their offering and, and go through the prescribed practices of the Vedas. And after they were finished, they had to go through a process of desacralization in which they had other, another ritual bath in which they had to bathe in order to get all the sacred, inner, sacred stuff off of them before they went back to ordinary life. So you've got to be careful approaching the sacred for these purposes. Now, what about the material of the oblation? Now, I want you to think about, if, if, you, if you really get into this stuff, you think about, well, what would, there, what would be going on that you would have to fast? I mean, fasting is not talked about too much these days. But it's, I think, a very hugely important piece in all this. So is there, have any of you studied at all anything about fasting? Do you have any, why would fasting be a part of, of getting ready for such a thing? What might be going on there as a preparation, symbolically? Awareness of body sensations and the sense that uh, the body's immediate needs are not of the highest importance. Yeah. Very focused on God to do it once a week. Right. Okay, he's saying it enhances body awareness. It makes it clear that this is not about feeding my belly. It's about feeding me, maybe, but not about some profane sense of feeding me. That what I'm turning to here is something that's what we'd call a transcendent dimension. And this issue of focusing, it's like there's a lot of evidence that if you fast, it really does turn up your awareness. And I know a number of people that, are, that have built in fasting, conscious fasting as an aspect of their uh, ritual practice, 
uh, particularly when they, uh, as most of us do, have uh, are, are aware of their their addictive tendencies. So I think if you reflect on each of those things as ways to prepare one's attitude in approaching the process of a conscious sacrifice, ritual sacrifice, uh, it'll help you think about the approach to the unconscious that we'll deal with this afternoon and tomorrow. Nolan, did you? Is there also a part of that in the process of preparation by not even by fasting that she are able to move from the contaminated plane into the sacred plane and yep. make contact and begin with? Yeah. Because you're, you're not carrying anything from that plane with you right. in the body. Right. So that's an aspect of the purification process. And there, there would be... Uh, uh, in, in particular Hinduism, all that emphasis that you know from, if you know, familiar with uh, all the uh, Ayurvedics and all that sort of the body cleansing, colonics, and all that sort of thing, people today kind of laugh at that stuff, but that's, that's a primal purification image. And you know, in yoga, I mean, what I've been really looking back at yoga about is this sense of the body as the temple. It's truly a temple. Uh, as we said in that transforming fire workshop, it's the temple of Kundalini, uh, of sacred energies. And so uh, being very aware of the body as a vessel, we'll come back to that tomorrow, your body, your personality as a vessel. Uh, uh, once you get think about, thinking about that, then, then the idea of being thoughtful about what I take into it uh, begins to be more in focus. This afternoon, you know, we should think more about addictive process in which you feed on all sorts of things unconsciously, compulsively, and to think about sort of the sacred dimension of that, the unconscious sacred dimension of that. Anyway, so you've got the sacrificer, you've got what is sacrificed, what is it that is offered, and the scholars uh, that have looked at this um, Tell us that, uh, and here again, we're indebted to Iliadi, practically anything that exists has been offered as sacrifice by humans somewhere. And it's because human beings, particularly primordial human beings, human beings before the disenchantment of the world in the modern sense, they had a sense of everything being sacred, everything, everything having a spirit. And so uh, when I'm with my, some of my shaman friends, uh, we may be at a men's conference or something with one of my uh, these uh, shaman friends and uh, bring out the tobacco and the bourbon and uh, pour a little whiskey on the ground. Now, our Methodist friends might have a little problem with that. They like to pour out the whiskey, but but uh, but you can see there that residual sense that, well, that that's a there's a sacred dimension of that elixir, just as in many of these tribes, tobacco is a sacred thing. And so when you sit and smoke in a spiritual way, they have a sense of that as an offering. So practically anything, if it's, in, if it's intentionally offered as an offering, can be the, that which is the material of the sacrifice. In the ancient times, it was very often blood. And one of the fascinating things to me that I 
had forgotten as I was looking back to, to, to review for this, that in, 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 in a lot of the ancient world, particularly in Babylonia, there was a tie between the sacrifice of the ritual animal and divination. That is reading the signs. Now that is very, that should be very interesting to us as Jungians because, and we'll get into this more later, because Jung always said that synchronicities will appear whenever you're really consciously relating to the archetypal self. Whenever the archetypal self is really constellated in your personality, that's when you're going to notice synchronicities. Synchronicity is what Jungians talk about uh, that would be the context of divination, that is, looking at trends, being able to intuit trends. We call it paranormal intuition. In these ancient Babylonian sacrificial rites, they would sacrifice the animal after great preparation, and the priest would cut it open. They would look. Do you know what organ they would look at first? The liver. The liver. Any idea about why? Thanks, Bob. That's pretty good. <laughs> Any idea why you would look at the liver first? You, they look at all sorts of things, but uh, but why the liver? Uh, just guessing. They had some sense of how vital uh, that was in uh, in uh, just the metabolism, even their primitive medicine, or the name given to it. I, I don't really know. Well, they they noticed that it was really blood laden. So it, it was the most bloody organ. And since blood was considered the seat of life, they would go, it's, all, it's like it's that whole idea about going right to the center point. Go right to where the connection is between the innermost part of the person and that which is most powerful, the life force which is most powerful. So they would go to the liver, the seat of the blood, and they would examine the liver and by examining the liver, they would be they would do divination, uh, oracle-like things uh, based on the condition of the liver. So anyway, that relationship between so look at that sacrifice, the conscious awareness of the great powers, and the awareness of synchronistic events uh, through that uh, contact. But that gets us to the blood because a lot in terms of the offering and a lot of ancient sacrifice, it was blood offerings. And these blood offerings, far more often than people want to admit, were human sacrifices. Uh, and then, uh, in a process that a Freudian would call sublimation, you could say they're substitutions. You start taking, you know, we're going to, you know, it's Abraham and Isaac. You're going to sacrifice the boy, but then you get the, the, the animal that is the stand-in. If we had a lot of time, we could talk about all that scapegoat ritual where the sins of the people are all collectively put onto the scapegoat animal that's then banished from the midst of the community. An interesting little, a little piece which these, which these historians and scholars were noticing, but they didn't really know what to make of too much, was... Uh, uh, the people would lay their hands on the goat or the animal 
They had to lay your hand on it before it was sent away. And uh, some of these scholars would say, well, now that's not really an identification with the animal. Really? Well, not consciously, maybe. But uh, in the ancient world, there was a principle. Contact brings identification. Primal, participation mystique. If I, if I touch you, all those, tabo, all those taboos, why do you think in the ancient world it was, you had to be very careful about what you touched? It wasn't because of any germ theory they had. It was the whole idea that if you touch it, part of you gets on it. Part of it gets on you. You can't wash it off. It's like radiated plutonium contamination. So, <clears throat> so in any case... Uh, there's this whole thing, this movement from the primal slaughter and eating to finding a substitutionary victim that carries all the significance, the lamb of God, so to speak, the lamb. And uh, I don't know whether you've any of you heard of the work of Gil Bailey. He's a, uh, he is a... Uh, a person that has been working on, he, he's looking at uh, uh, Christian symbolism as a attempt to get away from the compulsive nature of uh, uh, human sacrifice, in his view, uh, that, uh, that in the ancient world, people had to feed the gods to keep them healthy, to keep the gods, you know, in place and powerful and so forth. And Bailey's idea is that in the Christian myth that Jesus, in becoming a sacrifice, uh, brought an end to the power of sacrificial dynamics. I think he overstates that a little bit, but I see where he's going with it, and we will come back to that when we're talking about Jung's understanding of transformation symbolism in the Mass. Because tomorrow I'm going to be talking about that whole imagery in the Mass both as it's seen in uh, uh, the Christian Mass and then also in the alchemical renderings of what's going on there. Uh, Gil Bailey's not a psychologist, certainly he's not a Jungian, but he has some sense that there's some transformation going when you get to this idea of uh, Christ as the high priest who offers himself and uh, makes other forms of sacrifice outmoded. Uh, we will get at the psychological side of that uh, tomorrow. Because basically where I'm going with you tomorrow is that Jungian psychology, you know, Edinger talked about how Jungian psychology, he thought, was a new dispensation. That there is something primordially different about the Jungian view of these things. And we ought to think about that together because I've been thinking about that a lot and... Uh, and I've, I've begun to think that Edinger was more right than I thought he was in the sense that in Jung's view, you have got to get this projective thing conscious. And whereas in a lot of these ancient rituals, there were all these external projection dynamics. The gods were all out there. You related to them out here. 
and you do your different means of relating to them out here, but they were not inside. Jung is convinced that the primal God power is in you. And if you're really going to get conscious, you're going to have to get conscious about that, and you're going to have to work your sacrificial process internally somehow. You've got to somehow get that projection off of people. Now, this afternoon, I want to talk with you about how we unconsciously cannibalize our friendships, our friends, our family members, uh, our co-workers. When we exist in these projective fields where all this stuff is going on, not consciously at the level of spiritual practice, but unconsciously at the level of relational sadomasochistic, psychodynamic forms of sacrifice. But we're going to come back to that. But just to say that what we're, what we're looking, when we're saying going from conscious, archaic forms of ritual, which was all dealt with out here, you deal with it out here, you're relating to it out here, through this modern period where we forget that this stuff is going on, there's nothing really, all that's primitive superstition, so we just all become addicts. Those people were primitive, but we act out. And then trying to get to a postmodern Jungian view in which we say, no, they weren't that stupid. There really are powers. It's just that the most important ones that you got to deal with are not all out there. They're in here. And you got to get conscious about relating to them. You see that movement? That's where we're going to be moving. So there are all those different, uh, different forms. The methods of sacrifice. Uh, there's libation. Does somebody know what a libation is? Pouring. Pouring. The image of pouring. You know, you get that in a lot of these stories. You know, pour out your life. That's a, that's a sacrificial one. Pouring out your life uh, for others. Something like that. That is a libation image. Oh, but a very, very common way, as we've said, is burning. The image of fire. That's why I gave that workshop on transforming fire, because fire is such a central image. I'm almost a Zoroastrian in that respect. I really think that, boy, if you, you really got to focus on fire if you're going to have the sense of the sort of this primal image in spiritual traditions. And so no accident that this issue of trying to, to commit things to the fire, that's such a primordial image, and I think that's why so many of us like to sit in front of a fire, you know, at a campfire in a fireplace and so on. But it's not the only thing, uh, burning. Uh, it's interesting as you study the different forms of, uh, of sacrifice in, uh, in the ancient world, there are also sacrifices uh, in drowning. You know, you, you, you drowned them. Uh, in, in, uh, for example, the ancient Norse people would throw people over cliffs. They would throw them into wells and waterfalls. Uh, in some of them, uh, for example, in ancient Aztecs, you would lash the victim to a, some kind of a scaffolding and shoot them with bows and arrows. So there are, the, and are, are there variations of hanging them on a tree, so that primal thing about the crucifixion. 
in my studies of ancient uh, Indo-Aryan, Indo-European mythology, uh, it's became, become evident to me that there is a form of sacrifice that was associated with each of the four quarters, that, uh, that they were not the same, that you, according to the particular archetypal energy, I'd say, that you're dealing with, that there would be a different, there would be a different approach to the sacrifice you would have to make. It wouldn't all be the same. You'd be doing the same thing. You'd be sacrificing, but the symbolic form would be chosen to be appropriate for whatever that particular sector of the divine world would be. Now, we'll be talking about that this afternoon. So who receives the sacrifice? It's usually... It's always to the beings which are the object of veneration. There was this little there was this little quote by one of these scholars. He said, Now these sacrifices won't be made to human beings, quote, unless they've first been deified in some way. And I laughed when I saw that and I said, Mm-hmm. Uh, idealizing transferences idealizing projections and so this afternoon when we come back and think about who we idealize that is who do we deify in the human world that's who we make our offerings to usually we give away important parts of ourself in our idealizing projections if you've ever listened to my lectures on idealization and evil that's what I'm talking about in there and uh, in that process. But usually to gods, to spirits, the departed, the ancestors, people who are venerated, that is, people who carry the, the ideal, the numinous energy, are the recipients. What are the, finally, what are the intentions of uh, these sacrifices? The consensus seems to be that any, that there are a number of these kinds of intentions, but the most central goal is to usually to establish some kind of either either some kind of beneficial relationship with a sacred order. The positive rituals of sacrifice are almost always to try to make the sacred power present, more powerful, and effective. Now if you're not thinking about this stuff in terms of relationships to the archetypal self, then it might be puzzling to see these these rituals. Let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, there was one quote about a particular tribe. Well, let me just summarize it. Uh, there would be often in the prayer to the deity, you would say. <clears throat> I'm giving you this to you that you may be that you may be strong, you may be more powerful. And you know, if you just look at that on a superficial way, you say, well, that's kind of a strange thing today. If if these things are so powerful, why would you be why would you be needing to offer things to them to make them more powerful? What sense would that make? But again, after the break we'll come back and think about that because let's put it this way. There are great forces in your psyche, but if you're depressed, you're not really being able to, to participate in the glow of them. See that? So 
we need to think about what you do when you do this conscious ritualization because although the archetypal self is always powerful, it's always 220,000 plus volts, but depending on where the ego is, it is not accessible or effective for you. And so all that superiority complex within can be just as superior and powerful as it wants to be, but if you're depressed and discouraged, for practical purposes, it's not powerful for you. So it's sort of, I, I suggest that you want to think about that kind of thing as sort of a pragmatic kind of thing. You know, well, it's really a question of, are you, are, is your power available and effective for me? Well, I want to give you this so that it will be. Now, that may sound weird, but tomorrow I'm going to tell you why I think that is not weird at all. That it is a very important way of thinking about relating to your grandiose energies. That your grandiose energies, if you're not aware of them and if you do not do something in terms of your own conscious relationship to them, uh, they won't be usable for you. See, they won't be they won't be able to be drawn upon in a creative and useful way. They will just create mischief in your life. So we'll come back to that. Okay, now we've got about 10 minutes before I want to take a break. Now let me just open it up. There's a lot of this, a uh, lot of these varieties of sacrifice. We've touched on some of the elements of it. The main thing I wanted to get you to see is this stuff is wildly omnipresent throughout the ancient world. For our purposes as Jungians, why would we want to look at that? Isn't that just old superstitious stuff? It's because of our interest in the collective unconscious. If you really want to see all these tide, tidal movements in the collective unconscious and see the fundamental primal dynamics, you don't want to look at somewhere where the ego function has repressed everything and put it out of consciousness. You want to look at see where people are acting it out so you can figure out, well, what's the plumbing here? What's the plumbing before all of the civilizational repression comes in and cloaks it. Uh, so from a Jungian point of view, that's why we look at this. Now let me just open it up for any questions about any of this stuff before we take a break. Comments or questions, or add, you may want to add examples. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, will you please comment on the uh, archetypal group psychology phenomenon of this uh, in that sacrifices are often carried out by uh, cults, clans, you know, civilizations and so on and so forth. There must be an awful lot of projective identification that goes on with the group where I think Jung speaks in several places about the descent of, into the level of the animal and demonic forces come up when we identify with the group. Well, you said it well. He's talking for the tape. He, he's talking about the, the, the fascinating phenomenon of, of group dynamics in which what Jung would call a participation mystique with the group occurs. And this relates to what these scholars were talking about in terms of they say, well, you know, you've got to realize that, that for the ancient world, uh, sacrifice predominantly was not something an individual did. It was something done by the group. And that's kind of a throwaway comment. I mean, if you don't say, well, yeah, well. 
But if you're coming at it from what you're raising, this question about the psychology of this phenomenon, it's sort of like what I would call the psychology of mass psychosis. Uh, we have a lot of mass psychosis on the planet right now. Mass psychosis. We've got to get clear about this. We have a lot of these rationalist Western types that don't know any psychology that are, that are treating a lot of the current phenomena as if it's rational phenomena. And people are, you know, like, why do these people hate me? Well, <laughs> you know, hate is an archetypal phenomenon. Rage and hate are not rational phenomena. They are archetypal phenomena. They are possession states. And they are therefore phenomena of mass psychoses. And, uh, and so this participation mystique is something I want us to think a lot about uh, uh, after the break and, uh, and this afternoon. Because it's not just the Nazi SS or the uh, Japanese uh, warrior cults of the Second World War, the kamikaze, or the Al-Qaeda who are engaging, or the, uh, what was the other ones you named, the Branch Davidians, uh, or the, uh, name me some more, Heaven's Gate group. Um, well, how Hezbollah. This is widespread, friends. And the thing that I've been trying to say in my writing, certainly in this Facing the Dragon book, I've really highlighted it, this, this group possession states. And it's on a continuum. It's not, just, it's not just that these people over here are in a possession state, you know, uh, but uh, fundamentalist zealotry of any kind is a possession state. It's a participation mystique. Jung knew that. That's why he was so afraid of collective. In my work, I have tried to soften Jung's demonization of the social dimension uh, because, for, quite frankly, as we'll see uh, later today uh, and tomorrow, uh, I don't think most of us are up to controlling our grandiose energies without other people. Certainly, what we call in psychoanalysis today supportive self-object milieu. Uh, healthy relationships keep you saner. But the problem is that the power of these archetypal energies, the, the power of the dragon, I call it, the archetypal self, is so huge and it's in everyone and it's very contagious. And if I want, and it's in your old brain, there's a lot of brain research that we can talk about later today and tomorrow if you'd like. Uh, there's a lot of evidence now that, you're, that, 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 that in your old brain is a lot of very unruly instinctual energy. Read that archetypal energy. And as the decline of ritual leadership has continued in our world, and as it continues today, that energy has not diminished. It has become fuel. It has begun fueling more and more mass psychoses. This was Jung's take on Nazism as a phenomenon. It is happening again. A lot of people in our punditry today think this is the 1960s, and this is, we're getting into the Vietnam era again. This is not the Vietnam era. This is the 30s. 
we are we are on the we are we are on the brink of incredibly contagious participation mystiques. And when that occurs, there's always sacrificial dynamics going on. And the problem is, you know, with us humans, you know, I talked about, well, what is it that's to be sacrificed? Well, if you're not working on this inner temple piece, you know, if I'm not working on the inner temple piece so that I understand that it's my superiority complex, that I've, not, I've got to figure out how to sacrifice. Then I may just sacrifice you. In fact, let me see. Which one of you is the best looking? Target of my envy. Which one of you do I hate the most because you're beautiful? Or smart? Or rich? Or whatever? Or which one of you is the most passive, sort of the most perfect candidate for being an Adonis that I can get to volunteer to be the beautiful sacrificial victim. I want you to be thinking about all those beautiful sacrificial victims that you know, because you know some beautiful sacrificial victims that have been sacrificed by their families, sacrificed by their friends, so on. So anyway, this is a huge deal. And so the participation mystique, I want you to think grandiose energies. And I want you to think the decline of the capacity of human beings even to control, contain, and channel those things as effectively as the indigenous types and the ancient peoples did. We think they were primitive. Actually, they were far more superior to us today. What we do is just, we just spend billions more dollars on more and more sophisticated means of burning up larger and larger sacrifices. We have just started new nuclear programs all over the world. Douglas Gillette, my co-author of all these books on masculine psychology, and I, we've just finally gotten a contract after about 10 years on uh, a book that we started uh, at least, uh, gosh, it must have been the late 80s. Uh, and it's entitled The Last Rite, uh, Secularism, Fundamentalism in the Human, the Future of Spirituality, that is. And uh, that's really about this. It's, it's about the gathering storm now, the gathering pressures to have a big sacrifice. You know the word holocaust? You know where that came from? Anybody know where the word holocaust came from? It's a burnt offering. It's a burnt offering. And uh, so we're getting ready for a big fire. And the, the, the thing about Jung's psychology is he points out that is an unconscious pressure to that. You are going to have a sacrifice. You don't get to choose. You're going to have a sacrifice. So the, the central point of our workshop this weekend is, we, you know, we've got to get conscious about what, what ought to be the sacrifice. Because when you're acting out unconsciously, you always choose somebody else to be the sacrifice. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that? And if you're going to get conscious and work with your own psychopathology or my own psychopathology, translate that where I'm inflated and I don't know it, that's the worst part. 
If I can't sacrifice that part of me that is unconsciously grandiose, uh, then it generates enormous chaos around me and in my personality. Yeah, Sammy. What happens when self gets sacrificed? When there is rage, hate, depression, um, and the person may be passive aggressive and then decides to kill self? Well, you just said. What happens? She, she says, what happens when self gets sacrificed? See, that's what we're going to come to uh, this afternoon uh, because it's always happening. Why do you think we have so much rage? Because we are, in fact, unconsciously, uh, and think about this in terms of family system and fusion dynamics, to the extent you're still fused with your family of origin, you're sacrificing to your family of origin. You're giving, you are sacrificing your solid true self to, to that system. And the process of differentiation, getting conscious with what you're offering, you're offering, your, and we're not talking about the archetypal self here, we're talking about the little s self, your true self, your solid self. You're giving parts of yourself away that you can't afford to lose. <laughs> That's the key. And it does create rage. It's inevitable that it creates rage. Because there's somebody inside you that knows that that should not be being given away. That should not be given away to humans anyway. So one of the most important things to do in terms of your own personal psychological and spiritual life is, is to really work very hard to get conscious about where are you engaging in these unconscious sacrificial offerings without knowing you're doing it. It's hard enough after you know what you're doing. Take it from me. I mean, we can talk about your family system this afternoon, but but it always, when you're giving away, when you're making offerings unconsciously to any person, when you're turning them into the higher power and you're making an offering to another person compulsively, giving yourself away, splitting yourself in order to maintain that relationship, that is a sacrificial process. And in my personal view, it's a demonic one. Does that make any sense to you? It's a demonic one. That you have to be conscious even about how you're offering yourself to, to a divine. Consciously offering to a divine being. That's got to be conscious because that's not safe. But the people, that's sadomasochism. One more comment or question, then let's take a short break. Yeah, Gary. Um, you know, when you when you touched on rage and hate and referred to it as an archetypal phenomenon, what that set off was this this these thoughts about rape, random violence, you know, attacks and so forth that are out there going on. That there's this acting out of uncontained, unregulated archetypal energy going on out in culture, and you know, by individuals, you know, kind of, it's like the gods are roaming the streets. The gods are roaming the streets. Through these people. And there are these random sacrifices, there are random victims, and there's terror. Yeah. And so, the, you know, what, what can be done, you know, collectively about containment? I'm thinking in terms of the ritual processes. You know, do we literally do those? 
You know what I mean? <laughs> well, we'll we'll come back to that some uh, tomorrow. Uh, what the question is uh, with all of the question is: Is all this terror and random violence is that in this ballpark? Is that phenomenon that's related to this? It is the discharge of archetypal energies, the, the unconscious discharge. It is often by people who are willing to sacrifice you. That is, a, a sociopathic predator uh, feels in the place of the God. And you are appropriate, uh, you know, appropriate stuff to feed the appetite. And so you need, you just need to understand that increasingly our social world in this planet is, it is getting more and more archetypal all the time. It's getting more and more dominated by archetypal dynamics all the time. My optimistic friends, the few of them that exist, you know, uh, would like to say, well, see, this is the dawn, this is the dark before the dawn. And, uh, and this is the chaos, and you have to have chaos before you have transformation. And, you know, that's a pretty good rap. The only thing is I've studied chaos a lot in personalities and families and organizations. And you know what? For every organization that's transformed by chaos, hundreds of them terminate. And uh, so, so we do have a huge problem on our hands. Is there anything you can do about it? Well, as Jung said, and this is why we're having this workshop, the most important thing you can do about it is undergo what uh, Eric Neumann called your own central version. You need to, to get start with yourself, get conscious, get to the point where you're not overwhelmed by all of the hysteria First thing is just to, for you to get into your own inner temple and get into that center point, that calm at the eye of the storm, so you are less subject to being pulled off of your feet by the hysteria. That's the first thing, because if you don't do that, you won't be able to think clearly enough to do anything else. And then I'm, I'm not one that thinks that this is all private. I think that you have to support institutions which are seeking to provide cultural containment. You have to support educational institutions. You have to support initiatory organizations, uh, which are seeking to provide, for example, John's involved with the Mankind Project, which I support a great deal. Uh, uh, there's a sense in which the Mankind Project and its uh, affiliates are trying to create a family beyond the family a larger family, a larger circle, where people can face their grandiosity consciously. They actually work on this better than anybody I've seen. And to try to take responsibility for it and try to work together toward uh, mentoring and building community in a time of the destruction of community. Uh, and another point, just to say, uh, there are a lot of people that want to do the classical thing and say, oh, the churches are outmoded, all the religious groups are outmoded. Well, there's a sense in which, you know, everything is always outmoded culturally because, you know, they're, form, they're historical forms. But I view all of these voluntary associations, serious voluntary associations, including churches, uh, 
these organizations that exist for personal and community uh, growth. Those are buckets, they're vessels, they're containers to help us deal with all of this flooding. And uh, the new age, one of the criticisms I have of all the new age is that they have a fantasy that, that this can all be done privately in your own meditation. Well, your own meditation is important, but you know what? Our, our institutions in this, civil, in this civil, civilization are declining, all of them. And it's because of the lack of care. The lack of care exists because of the increasing narcissism. The increasing narcissism exists because of the lack of an ability to be conscious of and regulate grandiose energies. So you've got to stop that regress. And so your participation in the Young Institute or in the uh, school councils with your school or in trying to support uh, your library, all of these uh, social institutions are key bulwarks against this, this flood. Uh, let's take about uh, a uh, ten-minute break and come back, and then I want to... Okay, I would like to... Uh to uh, just introduce the uh, important uh, work of, uh, of uh, the classic Jungian tradition on this. Uh, if you have interest in expanding this and you haven't uh, been following these, uh, these lectures and workshops, then uh, you would want to look at the uh, series of lectures I gave on uh, the genius of Edward Edinger, Ego and Archetype, the genius of Edward Edinger, which are available, which will give an extensive elaboration of this work on Edinger. What I'd like to say about this is, is the classical Freudians had a sense of uh, compulsive sacrificial process. In fact, uh, one of the things you'll notice in studies of sacrifice, they will refer to Freud's theories of totem and taboo and the, uh, the uh, group sacrifice of the primal father and the origins of the incest taboo in the group sacrifice of the primal father in which the primal group uh, slaughtered the primal father and ate him and then because of ambivalence about their destruction of their beloved object they uh, in, in, instituted the, the incest taboo. So the Freudian, classical Freudian theory before everything became ego psychology uh, or more recently self psychology, they looked at, uh, Freud and his early followers looked at these dynamics <clears throat> uh, in an interesting way. They tended to view all of these, sac these unconscious sacrificial dynamics as, as obsessional phenomena. Uh, in a sense, and the whole idea of the repetition compulsion in Freudian psychology in the frame we're talking about today, it would be <clears throat> uh, unconscious sacrificial dynamics. A repetition compulsion might be uh, all sorts of things, but it would be um, when you um, repeatedly engage in pseudo-ritual actions which are really destructive and dysfunctional for you. That's what a repetition compulsion is. Now in the Freudian tradition they don't have it, they see this as grounded in the id dynamics, the ego struggle with the it. 
Uh, and I don't think they're altogether wrong, as you will notice in my Facing the Dragon book. I really believe that what Freud was talking about in the it, the id, the it, and uh, what Adler was talking about in terms of the power of the superiority complex, uh, and what Jung is talking about here in a moment in the archetypal self, I believe they're referring to the same fundamental uh, problem of the human beings, the struggle against these primordial energies, the great primal dragon. But it was Jung and Edinger in that tradition who really got clear, I think, for the first time, uh, that in fact uh, the driving force behind all of this preoccupation with sacrificial ritual uh, in mythology and in human behavior is really grounded in the reality of the uh, of the archetypal self, the great self within. In Jung's work, uh, he became very, very adamant about pointing to the objective psyche. Many of you have studied this a good deal, but uh, a lot of the time people uh, miss the radical importance of focusing on the power of the objective psyche, not the ego, but the power of the objective psyche. The tremendous energies that flood human beings and drive them into monstrous uh, actions. Uh, Jung was the revolutionary thinker who, who said you've got to look at that in itself. You've got to not just look at that as a personal issue. It's not just personal pathology. In other words, what I've come to argue a lot in my teaching of, uh, of both laypersons and of therapists is most psychopathology is not really personal. Most, in my view, most if not all psychopathology, it is pseudo-personal. You may think it's all about you, but it's really about a colonization. It's a colonization of your human personality by what I call dragon energies. And uh, <clears throat> it was Jung that enabled us to really think about the archetypal self as a force in the psyche that is a separate center in the psyche. It's a separate center of initiative. It is conscious. It's always watching you. It is always conscious of you, whether you're conscious of it or not. And that is probably the most radical, important thing, in my view, that a person has got to get clear about. And I think, I think Jung was the revolutionary breakthrough. He got clear there is a objective psyche. There is a great self. It's paying attention to you. And it is monitoring this archetypal self is monitoring whether or not your ego conscious is aware of it. Because if your ego consciousness is not aware of it, your ego consciousness is involved in all sorts of unconscious interactions with it. And in the context of our workshop today, there are sacrificial interactions with it. Unconscious sacrificial interactions with the archetypal self. The insidious thing that I, that I, there's a mystery behind it, I'm sure, but the insidious thing to me is that when you are at your most, quote, humble, unquote, when your ego feels alone and 
helpless and alienated, it is precisely then that you are very inflated. You're most inflated when you have declared yourself to be alone, when you've declared yourself to be uh, without resources. This is not our typical picture of what narcissism or inflation is like. This is one of the things that I've criticized classical Jungians for. Because classical Jungians fall into the same kind of boat as somebody like the Freudian Otto Kernberg, who, uh, you know, they can't stand narcissistic personality disorders because they are so arrogant and pompous. What these people don't realize is that that's not the only way to be inflated. And what I've tried to do in my work is to show that it is really the question of uh, how one is colonized by these archetypal energies or not that's actually clearly a function about how aware am I of the archetypal self in its presence? How aware am I of what sacrificial interactions I'm going, uh, that are going on with me right now between me and the archetypal self? Because if I am not aware of what's going on between me and the archetypal self right now, I'm walking in a cloud. So if you're a therapist or if you're a person interested in that, you listen to those lectures on archetype compulsion and healing. And I address this in this Dragon Facing the Dragon book when I talk about dragon laws. And that's like, this is, this is, this is where I'm on the same page with Jung. Number one, the archetypal self is. It's not you. It's very powerful. It's aware of you, whether you're aware of it or not. If it senses that you're not aware of it, it does not like this. It's not happy about this. It tends to become an adversary when you're not aware of it. That is to say, when you turn a cold and blind eye to the presence with a capital P, that's an arrogant act. It doesn't feel arrogant. I'm just little old me. There's nothing big in me. Typical Adlerian neurotic. I'm not superior. But something under the surface is very big. <clears throat> and Jung's whole emphasis was get conscious. This thing is huge. It's the more unconscious you are of it, the more dangerous it is. What is individuation about? Individuation is about getting clear that you're not it. Individuation. Think about individuation is coming here's where the merger with, with your ego and the archetypal self is as a child, in, in primal infant. Development is about gradually differentiating from it. So you know you're not God in that simple way that you thought. So Jung built a whole edifice of the individuation process, not on becoming archetypal, not on romanticizing archetypal experience, but in getting clear about how much of our experience is archetypal, impersonal, transpersonal, 
and trying to support the human being as the human being tries to emerge out of the archetypal matrix. Individuation is emerging out of the archetypal matrix as a person. And so that, according to Jung and all classical Jungians, requires becoming more conscious. When you become more conscious, you, re you, you, you face the ways in which you are in a participation mystique with the archetypal self. I may experience the archetypal self in John in a transference, an idealizing projection to John. He, for me, then becomes the archetypal self and I seek to fuse with him to share in the power. You follow that? And in order to do that, I may engage in very masochistic dynamics because I am, I am seeing him as the God in order to be anyone, I have to relate to him. This is like marriages. There are a lot of marriages like this. A lot of friendships like this. One of the things I try to do with people when I work with them is to have them look at their relationships to see where they may be idealizing the person they're in a relationship with rather than relating to them. If you're idealizing them, you're making, into the, making them into the carrier, the vessel of the archetypal self, and you're not really relating to the human being. And you're likely to have a lot of rage with the person. Does that make sense to you? See that? Now, Edinger, in his work, which I think is a, a wonderful exposition of Jung's classical point of view, especially the ego and archetype book, and all of his vast corpus uh, in which he looked at all these uh, different traditions, and especially his last book, The Archetype of the Apocalypse, uh, he's talking about the struggle of human beings to get conscious of the presence of the archetypal self and form the ego self-axis, by which that simply means if you're forming your ego self-axis, that just means that you have gotten conscious that there is an archetypal self, not just as a concept, but if you have developed the archetypal self-axis, it means you practice the presence of the archetypal self. You try to practice it at all times. My friend John Giannini would say, you develop a synchronistic attitude. You try to live as if your ego is not the center. It's easy to say, hard to do. So in any case, Edinger gave this image of the round, the great round. You start out in that primal merger with the archetypal self, where the ego doesn't know the difference between itself and the archetypal self. As you get out into the world, you, get, you run into the fact that not everybody sees you as God. Some people do, and that's not all it's cracked up to be, right? Because if they see you as God, they want to control you. Kohut wrote wonderful treatments of that. If I idealize you, you have to do what I want, or I hate you. So, so you run into reality that not everybody worships you. Then you, in, you undergo a kind of a traumatic beginning of your separation from the archetypal self. And you, you're, you're not as flush with archetypal energies then. You may get depressed. And so you get more and more deflated. And you can get more and more deflated to the point that you kill yourself. 
which is in effect a ritual phenomenon in which you get sacrificed. You don't know it, but you're, you're sacrificing to the great dragon, but you don't know it. But if you get conscious about how arrogant you've been and you undergo a metanoia, as Edinger says, a change of heart, and you realize how arrogant you've, you've been, and you develop a sacrificial attitude toward the archetypal self, that is to say, you, you, you reconnect with a sense of the presence of the archetypal self, but you're not as arrogant as you were. And what happens, Edinger says, is that the golden energies begin to flow again. You reconnect with them. And your deflation then begins to be remedied by the flow of the beneficial relationship to the great powers. Follow that? There's the sacrificial dynamic. You take a sacrificial attitude, the flow resumes. You start to get the energy you need again. And lo and behold, Edinger says, you start getting inflated again. See the, the damn. It's the, uh, the, the, there are these therapists that have a fantasy. My Ad Freudian friends and my Adlerian friends and a lot of other folks and different schools of thought, they got a fantasy that if you get a really good therapist, then you will <clears throat> kind of get rid of that superiority complex. Or you will, you will get your, your grandiose energies will be analyzed and you will form an ego, strong ego, and you will be able to tolerate ambiguity and blah, 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 and, and you'll get to where that your grandiose energy is not a problem anymore. Oh, yeah. I always think that's so amusing, as I've told many of you before, because anytime you're around a bunch of therapists, you can tell that they haven't completely gotten rid of all their grandiose energies, especially at meetings of therapists. So in any case, Jung and Edinger had a sense, no, 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 no. You don't analyze this away. It's always with you. And here's where that sacrificial process thing comes up. You don't get conscious and all the higher powers go away. <laughs> They don't, they're not discovered to be just a part of your personal unconscious. You get conscious, you realize, oops, they're still here. Well, what is my choice? Well, I can go back into denial and pretend they're not here. That's what modern people do. And then they return in the form of an addiction. Uh, or um, I can... Uh, get nervous and become a fundamentalist. And, uh, and I can think that I am really being humble. But what I've really done is to create a franchise of the sacred energies that I think I run. I am the McDonald's of sacred energy, which is a hidden inflation. A friend of mine, Robert Franklin, recently wrote a book on... Uh, a spirituality in America in which he was differentiating Americans' interest in spirituality from religion. And I think it's very interesting because a lot of people are realizing that uh, if you get too tribal with your religion, there's something weird about that. 
And I think that's sort of a move in the Jungian direction, the realization that the inner position really is the key thing. It's not that we don't need the religions, we do need every resource we can have against all the flooding. But you got to be careful about your solutions to your grandiosity. And one of the ways, of course, you can always tell is self-righteousness is always inflation. Not everybody that's self-righteous has a gambling, compulsive gambling problem, but some of them do, if you noticed recently. So anyway, um, this is the great cycle. So what's it got to do with our topic for this weekend? Well, you've got to get conscious about your sacrificial process. This was Edinger's whole thing. You've got to get conscious about living continually in an awareness of the great presence and how you're going to relate to it. What does it require to relate to it? So the, uh, the Jungian point of view has helped us to get a sense that this is not just primitive superstition. Becoming modern won't make this go away. People that engage in sacrificial process are not just those primitives over there. It's everybody. Everybody engages in sacrificial process. The only distinction is not whether you do it. It's how conscious of you are you about what your sacrificial process is. And if you became conscious of it, what would you want to change about it? In other words, how would you improve the creativity of the particular stance towards sacrificial process toward the archetypal self uh, that you can make. You see what I'm getting at? We're going to come back this afternoon uh, and talk about getting clearer uh, about what the unconscious offerings we're making uh, to the archetypal self are. And here again, I just want to underscore the point. And then we can discuss this some. You don't get to choose whether you're going to make sacrifices, offerings. The only thing you're going to be able to do is to get be more, relatively more unconscious or more conscious about what offerings you're making and what direction, what altars you're making them on. Because if I make an offering on a... Uh, on a, this particular archetypal altar, it looks this way. And it has certain effects. And it's not the same as an offering I might make on some other altar. It's Jung's psychology that's made it, made it possible for us to reconnect with the eternal situation of humans. We don't get away from the powers. We only can become more conscious and awake and more creative in our ritualization of this uh, in our spiritual life. So we've got about 15 minutes. Let me open it up for comments and questions. Yes? This is very difficult in the real world. Mm -hmm. In the sense that um, as you develop your own spirituality, you become uh, more and more involved as a human being. Mm -hmm. And your value system is not the same as someone who may not be has not gone through this process that you've been going through. All right. Sure. Now, 
you have this value system and you are in a society and the society does not support this value system. It's true. So that um, um, if, like this gentleman was saying, he works during the daytime at something that he doesn't like, he has a family, he's making concessions, and that has an impact on his personality. Sure. Um, now, when you're in the system and they don't provide you with financial resources to care for the people within the value system that you have involved, you know that they are wrong, but you're not in a position to make any changes in that. That's true. When you work for a drug company and you are trying, you know the problems that are going to affect our country with these diseases that are coming in, but the shareholders want their money, which limits your ability to do the kind of research that you know as a person, as a more involved person, you have a conflict. Yes, and, you do. Indeed, you do. Um, when you know that children have special needs, but the community is not going to provide for these special needs, that makes you almost an accomplice in this kind of pathology that you have no control over. So, That's called contagion in the ancient world. Do you hear she's saying that you inevitably living in the social world, you are affected, well, I'll translate it, you're, you're affected by um, dynamics in the social world which are fueled by grandiosity of a lot of other people, not just your own. And this is true. You see, this is part of coming to, becoming awake to the situation we're in. So that is certainly true. And I'd be the last person to tell you, and Jung, Carl Jung would be the last person to tell you, that coming to consciousness is easy or it's not painful. Because that's why if, if, if it were so easy or painless, a lot more people would do it. So now, did you have a particular thing you wanted to, to flag with that? I, I totally agree with you. I have to tell this gentleman that there was a book that was written several years ago called Modern Madness. And it was, it was commissioned by the federal government to do a study as to why government agencies don't work. And the man who wrote the book, I've forgotten his name, he was a psychoanalyst from the White House, student in Washington, I believe. And he was also very grounded in corporate theory. Mm -hmm. So his premise was not why the government agencies don't work. He said that what's happening in our country is that this is across the board that um, all of our organizations are becoming more bureaucratic. The uh, hospitals, universities, the schools. And he said that with this bureaucracy, there is a hierarchy. And the people... Now, what does this, how does this really interface with what we're talking about here? I think that there are a lot of dimensions there, but can you just put it in the form of a question? He's saying that as you go up, you are shaped. Mm -hmm. and you are shaped within a sadomasochistic system. That's right. The people who choose mm -hmm. not to go up, to mm -hmm. become part of this kind of, of uh, structure, they are the ones who are at the bottom trying to work out their spirituality. Yeah. They may be scapegoated. This is true. And as a result, it said that because they are caught with a conflict of values, they develop addictions. 
Self-medication, uh, you know, a lot of us self-medicate in order to deal with these ambiguities and these conflicts we're in, moral ambiguities, the spiritual ambiguities, there's no doubt about that. But one thing I would want to be really very careful about with this sort of thing, that is to say, one of the marks of, uh, of sort of unconscious sacrificial stuff is when you get into a fantasy of powerlessness. Um, that is to say, that's always an idealization when you get into the fantasy that you have no power of agency. It's always an idealizing dynamic. And uh, it's not to say that you've got unlimited power, but every, every person has got some power and uh, that they have to steward. And uh, it's, very, it's very daunting now for people who are trying to be awake. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but what do some people choose? They choose, well, it's too painful to be awake. Let's, uh, let's just, let's just uh, get drunk and, and get in denial. Uh, I gave a set of lectures on the courage to be transformed, which addresses these issues you're talking about. Paul Tillich was very aware of that. And, and if you'll listen to those lectures, he'll address the, 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 the challenge of courage in these times. Yeah. Before the break, you spoke of an ominous monsters in Western mm. civilization. Yes. Uh, I want to know, some, I'd like to know if I could, some more of its anatomy. Um, I, you mentioned that we're in the 30s, analogous to the Holocaust, analogous to the Nazi Germany. Yeah, it's, it's the growing, uh, there are many, many different scholars from different places, different points of view that are pointing to the, to the increasing um, if you look at Christopher Lash's book he wrote right before he died, that was published, uh, you know, that was published right at the end, called uh, "The Culture of Narcissism: The Revolt of the Elites," um, and there are a number of others from different people. And it's just, it's just saying that that the capacity for what psychoanalysts call generativity in our culture, there's a continuum that goes between narcissistic self-preoccupation and generative care. And in order to have a civilization, you have to have people that step up and try to take care of the institutions and try to stand uh, against the, uh, the, the dysfunctional energies in an organization or in a family or, or in a culture. And uh, the problem I've addressed in my work, my book on the archetype of initiation, that, that one of the main factors in this is... Uh, uh, the decline of people stepping up as elders. Our, our fantasy of aging in this country, in this culture, where if you get 55, you're supposed to go to, the, to get away from anything. You've worked and now you should get away. Uh, when in most cultures, the human wisdom has been that when you get 55, now you're ready to try to help. So anyway, the big monster is simply the growing, unregulated grandiose energies that express themselves in a tidal wave of narcissism. Uh, and so the real question now is whether or not we can cultivate a kind of a spiritual and psychological maturity which, in which people increasingly, rather than just getting into their uh, doomsday fantasy, their resignation fantasy, the biggest, most scary thing right now is all the resignation fantasies that the horse is out of the barn. There's nothing we can do. You know, and that's where the fundamentalists go. Well, they want to see it all. They want to pull the chain, see it all flush so the new world can come.
And uh, that's probably the most dangerous fantasy that's out here now. People getting resigned, people feeling powerless. Somehow we've got to stoke the fire a little bit. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. It's on all. That is, fundamentalism is essentially a retreat into a kind of an alienated, fearful rigidity that is resigned to the Holocaust. That there's going to be a big conflagration and then we'll have the new world, the brave new world that'll come out of it. Uh, but uh, boy, that's, in my view, that's a recipe for disaster and it's really, uh, uh, it's really growing. Edinger's book, The Archetype of the Apocalypse, addresses that. You know, a lot of these uh, spiritual gurus have fed that. You know, they, the fantasy, oh, well, the thing, the horse is out of the barn now. Everything's going to come to an end. Uh, we're going to have the nuclear holocaust, and then we'll begin again. There's that fantasy. That's an archetypal fantasy, and one we shouldn't be supporting. Because uh, uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is predicated on all this archetypal stuff working out. And, uh, and if we just kind of hit the restart button... Then we'll be back to Eden. So would an individual psyche in that mode of um, this is the end of the world, yeah. aren't they much more apt to take rash, much more apt to kill? Oh, absolutely. That's desperation, see. When you're, in, when you're most desperate, you're at the end of the world, uh, then you want, to d you want to destroy the old world. The other side of this coin is grandiosity too, because if you're apolitical, you just don't care about anything. Cause that's and tell me how that's grandiose. That's right. Well, how is that? That how is that? He's saying that if you get into that, everything is messed up. The Democrats and Republicans, they're all alike. Everybody's. If you get into that, how is that grandiose? I think it is grandiose. But. You're leaving, um, you're removing yourself from the process, number one, and just leaving it to, to, to somebody else. Yeah, you know, for the Adlerians, it's like uh, Adler, Adler was really good at it. He really sought through that one because he said anytime anybody declares bankruptcy, it's really a power move. It's really a hidden power move. It's saying, you, you do the work. You do the work. Let Jesus do the work. That's the fundamentalist fantasy, fundamentalist dependency fantasy. You know, Jesus paid it all, let him do the work. You know, we're not going to bother with this or that or the other. And, uh, and, but that's a harder one to see. It takes a, you've got to really be able to see the inflation in the depression, the inflation in the resignation to be able to see that. But the, but the, the key is there's no generativity in that. There's no care. You don't. The dragon's going to kill. It's not going to do your dishes and do your laundry. <laughs> I think that's why the Buddhists, some of these really mature Buddhists, they say chop wood, carry water. You know, if you're really in your Buddha nature, chop wood and carry water. That is to say, if, if, you're, if you're really in your Buddha nature, you, you know, you don't get out of chores. And so that's a good point. Yeah, you were going to say something. Fundamental terms uh, about grandiosity and inflation. You're laying a lot of uh, 
blame's not the right word, a lot of responsibility on yeah. those doorsteps in our yes. inner work. And I just need a little help of what, you, what you're meaning that and its origins. I assume you mean it's coming from identification with... This primal generator within, right? When you lose, when you lose the differentiation between yourself and this solar power inside you, uh, and you either, in, I talk about this in the Facing the Dragon book, you will either identify with that, in which you'll be a really arrogant individual and ego, and you'll function as if you are the center, or you will project that. You won't work it through, you won't get conscious of it, you'll simply project that on your wife or your boss or your guru or whatever, and, and that way you absolve yourself of any conscious responsibility for becoming conscious and stewarding that energy. And so that is the key thing about a Jungian point of view, that is that, that solar energy is in you and it's not going away, and it's not going to be analyzed away. You can't medicate it away. It's, it's there. And you, the challenge of individuation is getting conscious about it and coming to what Edinger calls the ego-self-axis that is consciously relating to it in as creative and responsible a way as possible. So you're absolutely right. I, I do put a lot of, of weight on that. I, I emphasize that uh, in terms of practical concerns more than probably anyone else has. But I really believe it. I believe that... Uh, getting conscious about these dragon energies in your personality and relating to them constantly. It's a, there's nothing in the world more important to you than that. Yeah, right here. I have two questions, one of which I'm really kind of like foggy about. Okay, okay. Uh, and I'm in particular, I have in mind a client, four-year-old male, going through a divorce, lost his job, extremely suicidal. Mm -hmm. And obviously deflated, and you're telling me, no, he's really inflated. I don't get that. Well, so that you got to go back to the round. Say, when someone feels alienated, the ego becomes consciously alienated from, from the sense of the presence of the archetypal self. The ego is not aware that it's participating in any great energies. What you've got to get clear about is the archetypal self has not gone anywhere. It is very powerful in the psyche. And when the ego becomes that, when you become that deflated and feel that terrible about yourself, the proximity of the great self is right there, and it is experienced then, here's where the Freud, Freud had it, the punitive superego then is the form it takes, and it will assault the little ego in a very vicious and sadistic way. And so when the person is suicidal, they are experiencing an assault of the presence of the great self. When you're unaware of it and you're not on good, respectful terms with the great self, it will often attack you. And a lot of, you know, we therapists talk about really negative self-talk. And one of the things as a therapist you need to do is to get people to monitor the toxic self-talk they do to themselves. You know, write down the negative thoughts they say about themselves. What I'm suggesting to you, if you take this Jungian point of view seriously, a lot of that negative so-called self-talk is, is really self-talk. It's archetypal self-talk. 
It's not really the, coming from the ego. The ego doesn't understand that that voice is coming off of the adversarial presence of the great self, which the ego feels consciously. It's, I'm little, but it's being attacked. In Adlerian terms, I'd say the, the ego consciousness is being attacked by the superiority complex. Uh, you see that a lot with people. The only thing I'm saying is don't get into the fantasy that that archetypal self has gone anywhere. You know, people will say, you know, God, I don't, God's not here anymore. He's gone or she's gone. Well, the Jungian understanding, that presence never goes anywhere. That presence is closer to you than anything else. But if you are turning a cold, disrespectful eye to it, whether you know it or not, Jung and Edinger and most of these classical people will say, it will become an adversary. It will start attacking you. And that's what I think Freud saw. When Freud talked about that punitive superego that's trying to kill you, trying to make you feel like you're just dirt. You shouldn't, you know, the world is a cesspool when you're in it. You should get out of it and make the world a better place. That's not coming from the human part. That's coming from that adversarial expression of the great self. Does, do you see what I'm talking about? I mean, you don't have to agree with it because, but that is a Jungian, that's a classical frame on that. Classical Jungian, yeah, Gary. Well, I'm just, to kind of go with what uh, this gentleman had said, there mm -hmm. is this sense of inflation, uh, colonization of archetypal energies that can present itself in this kind of inflated narcissistic. Oh, yeah. And, and at the same time, you know, uh, to distinguish betw between deflation and inflation is hard. I'm, I'm struggling with it, oh, yeah. too, because it seems like what you just said is that even though the, the conscious, the ego, feels the suicidal... It feels deflated. Yeah, it's really an inflation. It's really an inflation. So they're, they're colonized, they're filled with and possessed. Yeah, it's really an inflation. It's very important to get that. This is, and Adler saw this. He saw this very clearly. If you're in an inferiority complex, you're being, you're being dominated by your superiority complex. You don't know it. And for an Adlerian therapist, the Adlerian therapist's task is to get the person aware of those superiority claims that they're not aware of. And until such time as the person can get clear that they're in an, that they're in an unconscious superiority claim, they're not going to get better. So, I mean, it sounds cruel, but I tell you, we're not saying the person knows it. We're saying that it is unconscious, but this the archetypal self, the great self, has not gone away. And Jung and Edgar made this very clear point. If you do not, if you're not aware of its presence, you're going to generate a negative response on its part. Now, stay with that thought a minute. That means if you're not trying to live a synchronistic life, trying to cultivate, as Edinger says, an ego archetype axis, even if you believe in the archetype, even if you're a good Jungian, you believe in the archetypal self. But you're living your days and you're not aware of the presence of the archetypal self. It doesn't matter what you believe about the archetypal self. In that sense, existentially, what matters is if you're aware 
that you're never alone and that you're aware that if you cultivate an awareness of its presence and try to be respectful and collaborate, be a partner of it, it won't attack you. You see, this is the existential issue. And this is what we're, why we're talking about this today. Because creative sacrificial process means you can't creatively sacrifice to a presence that you're not conscious of being present. And if you're not conscious of it being present, the ego has closed up. And Jung and Edinger warn constantly, don't do that. Don't let your ego close up. Why? Because when your ego closes up, it is declaring there is no other presence other than me. And Jung simply reports that when you do that, the archetypal self will turn a hostile face to you. That's the clinical experience. Now, does, it, does anybody not get that now? You don't have to agree with it, but I mean, that is, that is where, that's where the classical tradition is. Yes, Fred. Sort of like that, recognizing that you have responsibility for your own life and actions. That what comes out of that? Well, but the opposite, it's not recognizing you have responsibility for your own life and actions, but it also, it would also issue as if you, if you thought that you had all the responsibility for your life and actions. That is to say, one mark of ego inflation is when you think you have more power than you do. Or you try to live as if you have more power than you have. Doesn't you see that? I mean, because uh, this is why, you know, you need to work with people. You got, people have to become very aware of what their offering is and, not, and become less invested in outcomes. Because you can control your offering your conscious offering. But there are a lot of synchronistic factors that go into what's going to happen that you're not in charge of. And if you think you're in charge of it, it's a massive inflation. Yeah. Um, Reed, could you uh, define what deflation is? And my second question is, um, the entertainment industry over the last many, many years has been um, supplying us with a steady uh, diet of violence, and is this a collective call for help? Well, let me just touch on that deflation again. Remember, when 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 Edinger is talking in that ego and archetype about deflation, or when he's describing that, he's talking about the subjective experience of the ego. He's not talking about whether the ego is inflated or not. He's talking about the subjective experience, like. I'm feeling great. I'm riding the wave of archetypal energy. I'm wonderful. I'm so wonderful that if I got any more wonderful, they'd arrest me. There's a little inflation there, but the ego, ego subjectivity feels it. When the ego begins to feel deflated, it's not aware of being in the presence of all those positive energies. But they haven't gone anywhere. And, and they will be they will be active. The important thing for you to get clear about: the archetypal self is always acting. It's always giving off energy, and the ego's attitude toward it 
has a lot to do with whether the manifestation is creative or destructive is all of this. What's important to get. So when we say deflation, don't think humble. Don't go to humble. It's not humility. When you're feeling deflated, you probably are unconsciously very, very grandiose. That's the important thing to get. And the other thing is about is all this violence, a collective cry for help. I think it is a cry for adequate ritual leadership and containment. Uh, it's desperation. Uh, but I think that uh, the entertainment industry has figured out that if it wants to sell things, it needs to push our compulsive buttons. And in order to push our compulsive buttons, it needs to stimulate the old brain. And if I'm going to stimulate your old brain, I need to give you images which elicit primal, uh, sexual, and aggressive responses, which are clearly archetypal in nature. But my purpose as an advertiser is not to help you regulate. You know, I like to tell people, when, when my goal for you, if I work with you, is I want you to rock and roll, and that is get the juice, but I want you to regulate so you don't fry. Well, they want you to rock and roll, but they don't want you to regulate. They want you to buy. Follow me? Their investment, all of, all of television's investment is in getting you to act out. You've got to be clear about that. It's sort of sorcery. One more comment, and let's go have lunch. So, um, sacrifice consciously acknowledges this autonomous, awesome aspect in yes. the psyche. Yes. And, um, and forms relationship to it. As consciously as possible, yes. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by reconnection? Well, see, the reconnection that, I'm, that Edinger's talking about there, that he's just talking about the fact that the juice starts flowing again. You know, the ego's subjectivity, uh, once, once it, it gets uh, a sense that uh, it's, not, it's not one with the archetypal self, uh, the juice will often begin to flow again. Uh, and so that the reconnection he's talking about there is in terms of the flow. And you think about what we said about sacrifice. Sacrifice is always you want to try to get the flow going between you and the, the powers. The issue is not are the powers there. The powers are always there. In sacrificial process, you're trying to figure out what to do to get the flow reestablished. And that the reconnection or the that part would be the flow gets reestablished. But what I like to push in contradistinction to what Edinger pushed, my personal emphasis is on regulation. Because Ed Edinger just said, you know, well, you're going to get inflated, then you're going to deflate, then you're going to reconnect, then you're going to get inflated. Well, that's true in a sense, but I want to flatten out the wave. I want to get you to where you don't have to go as low. You don't have to hit bottom before you start getting more energy again. I don't want you, and I want you to be able to tune it so that you don't get too manicky before you can turn the rheostat a little bit and, and fly a little bit lower altitude so you don't get lost out there. You know. So uh, Edinger didn't have benefit of a lot of the recent studies that we have of uh, regulating these energies. 
but I think you get the drift. You got it right. And when we come back this afternoon, we'll talk more about the plumbing of, of uh, being conscious about that. And then tomorrow, we will focus on this, this alchemical image of uh, really trying to practice that conscious sacrificial attitude. So uh, uh, as you uh, have lunch over lunchtime, you might want to just think about uh, if you're making unconscious offerings, where do you think they're going? Uh, because different people have them going in different directions. You just want to think about who do you, where do you give your power away? Who do you give your power away to? Because those are unconscious ritualizations, which are actually offerings. And uh, they may be offering to, to X, Y, or Z, uh, not because those uh, X, Y, or Z deserves that offering, but because you have some kind of an idealization going on with that person. And so you're involved in a sacrificial exchange process with them uh, without knowing it. Uh, John earlier mentioned codependency. Well, that's, that's an unconscious sacrificial exchange fantasy. So let's have a lunch and we will start back. Uh, this podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie Cabe Bryan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Pop, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Alan Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org. Flash gift.